0: welcome to another edition of the Villages Daily Sun Sports Podcast. I'm senior writer Drew Shaltry, joined today by specialty editor Jeff Shane. We're going to recap a busy weekend in golf that included a major as well as a designated event. We're getting into the run-up for another major, so we'll talk about some of the events that are leading towards that, as well as a major on the senior open coming up just this week. And we'll also get into the Villages SC as they're in the midst of one of the busiest stretches of their season and had... Probably the most lopsided week I can remember from that club in a while. So uh, very interesting week. But Jeff, first of all, welcome back states. Uh, welcome back <laughs> stateside.
1: <laughs> Kanichiwa after uh, a week in Japan and uh, enjoying a, a, t- a chance to watch some of the literally the world's best junior golfers. At the uh, Toyota Junior Golf World Cup, and that was a tournament that included, as I mentioned to you off-air, the reigning U.S. women's amateur champion in Japan, Saki Baba. We've talked about Anna Davis, how often on this podcast she bit, was yeah. there, and uh, the newly crowned Japanese women's amateur champion, Sori Iwo Jima. Uh, but none of them actually came out as the individual winner. That was another Jap- Japanese girl, the third one uh, by the name of Yuna Araki, who probably nobody knows what's ranked sixth among the world amateur rankings. And so um, just a record setting week on the women's side, or girls' side, I guess I should say, at the uh, Junior World Cup, the Japanese team set the team's scoring record and broke it by 12 shots, and the United States was two shots back, so they shattered the, the old scoring record as well.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool to see, and like I said to you, Offer, you know, you know it's a good tournament if you have all the biggest names and none of them are the winner. That's kind of what we had this weekend in golf. Uh, obviously, we had the Travelers Championship. Keegan Bradley, not an unknown name, but he ascends to the top of a field that included all of the top or most of the top golfers in the world, anyway. And the same thing in the women's PGA championship with Ronnie Yin. It's her second win of the year. But again, we were talking about Nelly Corda and Jin Young Ko and Rose Zhang and all the biggest names in the sport being in that field. So, you know, Jeff, take your pick. Which one do you want to start with between those two tournaments?
1: Why don't we start with the Travelers just because that was also a record setting performance by Keegan Bradley, and for a while there, it looked like he was going to shatter the scoring record out at TPC River Highlands, and that's a place that you have to get birdie after birdie after birdie uh, every day, practically. And there's it seems like every year, somebody shoots 62 or better. That's where Jim Furick shot the 58. That's where Patrick Cantley shot a 60 as an amateur golfer. And uh, Keegan Bradley he had the 36-hole lead, record 36-hole lead, record 54-hole lead, and even though he stumbled down the back nine, he still managed to break the 72-hole scoring record by a shot, 23 under par at TPC River Highlands.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good, you know, even given how much you know, people have been able to get after that course in the past. It's, it's a really, really good showing from Bradley. And he didn't even play his best all the way down the stretch on Sunday.
1: No, he put uh, two balls in the water on the back nine on Sunday. He had a five-shot lead. At one point, and like I say, it was really threatening to shatter Kenny Perry's old scoring record. But uh, ball in the water at 13, another ball in the water, I think it was at 16. That allowed the hard-charging Zach Blair and hard-charging Rory McElroy to actually get within a possibility of overtaking him. But Bradley pulled things together on 17 and 18 and winds up winning... He didn't say it specifically, but uh, we all know that as a native New Englander, the uh, what is the Greater Hartford Open, essentially? The Travelers <laughs> Championship is his fifth major.
0: Yeah, that's a big, it's always big to win your regional tournament, you know, especially when it's one that's there every year and stuff like that. We saw with the Canadian Open, we talked about it with uh, Max Homa a lot going into the U.S. Open, which was, uh, it played in, L.A. and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, and so, he's won
1: L.A. twice. Yeah. Talk about Zach Johnson at the John Deere Classic in Iowa. So. Yeah,
0: so got, you know, guys always want to win where they're from, especially got friends and family out there seeing you. And again, probably a course you're pretty familiar with. You know, When you grow up playing high-level amateur golf, you get a chance to play a lot of these courses. So Keegan Bradley, I'm sure, felt at home on that one, and that had to feel good for him. He said it was the first
1: PGA Tour event he ever attended, and from that day, that was the tournament that he dreamed of winning.
0: Yeah. Majors came along a little bit later. Well, there you go. Uh, now, Rory McIlroy, you mentioned some of the low scores that have happened at um, at this course at River Highlands, and you know Rory had some comments about maybe the quality of the course, the difficulty of the course, called it obsolete was the word that he used. Um, how do you feel about those observations from Rory?
1: Well, he could have stolen my line from about four years ago <laughs> because that is really just a course that, as I said, you have to shoot— 67, 68 every day, just to get in contention, every year somebody's gonna shoot 62 or lower And if you love birdie fests, this is definitely your course. It is a gettable course and it is set up to be a gettable course. It doesn't have a ton of length. It's got a drivable par four, which I like, but I I prefer more of a variety of long and short holes instead of short and little longer than short type holes. And there's just in that particular place where it's built, there's no room to expand. You don't want to turn it into a u.s open especially the week after a u.s open you want to give guys a little bit of a breather and a chance to do something different and i guess the travelers championship is successful in that sense but there are a lot of players out there who actually avoid courses like this because they don't like essentially putting contests they don't like to have score winning scores of 20 under par where everybody is shooting low. And, and if you f- shoot 69, you feel like you're backing up on the leaderboard. And, uh, I, and I think Rory McIlroy, even though he's won a couple of his majors with scores in double digits under par, he's still the type of guy that would prefer a, a more challenging golf course, more length, maybe use a few more clubs in your bag. Um, as, as I said, this is, a, this is a course that just can't grow, and I, I've thought for a long time as well, it would, it would be good if they could do something with it. But I think with the land footprint that they have out there in Cromwell, there's really nothing that they can do. So if you like 20 under par as your winning score, and I, I did look it up. I think it's seven of the last eight years, or maybe it's six of the seven last seven years. The winning score has been at least 17 under par. And... S- so, you know what you're getting into, but like I say, for a, a lot of golfers, they don't want to get into that, especially a week after U S open, they'd rather rest than have to put the pedal down.
0: Yeah. And it, you know, especially given that this is an elevated event, you know, uh, I understand that you know, travelers is kind of a, a legacy partner and that this is at a TPC course. There's some history there. And, uh, you know, the travelers has delivered some really good moments, but I don't, get this as an elevated event, just because of all the reasons you just listed the timing on the schedule coming right after the U S open. I, this is one of the ones that when they released that list uh, before this season, I think you and I both looked at like, eh, it was is right. this really one that that should be? Uh, now, my other question is, you know, you're talking about this course being obsolete. I also don't like watching golf where everyone was just going driver, wedge, putter. You know, yeah. that, it's not exciting. I want, I want variety. I want to see the process that guys are going through, deciding, do I go for a long wedge or do I, you know, do I hit a stinger with an that kind of like I want to see guys think through a course, and I feel like for all of, um, you know, some of the flaws with. LACC and how that shook out at at least on that first day first two days it really did force guys to think through a lot Uh, but is this course one of the cases for the golf ball rollback or do you think that this course is so constrained that even if we get to that point where we are putting out a golf ball for um, for the pros that isn't allowing them to hit 360 that it's still not going to matter
1: I would say I, I guess the answer to that would be it couldn't hurt.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's not gonna make it worse. Yeah.
1: No, not at all. And and it will force players to maybe use more clubs in the bag. Maybe they'll have to bring some of those um hazards into play, bunkers into play. But uh it, it would it would certainly do something to make players think through a golf course a little bit more. It also occurs to me as as we were kind of talking here, um, the uh, FedEx Cup playoff event in Boston has disappeared from the calendar. It's no more, and obviously I don't know the ins and outs of the corporate structure of that event. But could it be more of a New England event where, okay, you go to River Highlands every other year, but there is this TPC Boston, which was a playoff venue sitting out there right now with no tournament attached to it. Could you put something together where maybe you alternate sites, Hartford one year, Boston the next, back to
0: Hartford? Yeah, maybe that's something that could be worked out. Again, these ideas—we'll we'll send them up the chain and well, see what I they decide to Well, I can't even send him them to Jay Monahan;
1: <laughs> he's on medical leave now. Yeah. So,
0: uh, if anyone—if anyone at the PGA is fielding calls or listening to the podcast, you know, let us know. Um, you know, one of the top players who was not in the field this past weekend was Jordan Spieth. We talked before the U.S. Open about the wrist injury. He would missed uh, one or two events because of that, played the U.S. Open, uh, you know, played in a tournament before that. And so we were wondering how severe it was exactly. Um, but he says that uh, I believe the comment was that he's, quote, in agony over over the, the pain that he's enduring from the wrist. Obviously, the Open Championship is one of the big events for him. Aside from it just being a major, he has all of the history there. I'm sure that he's, you know, using this week off, the, the one uh, elevated event that the top 20 guys are allowed to skip uh, for the year, he's using it on, he used it on the Travelers. But, um, you know, this is now, we're seven, eight weeks into this. Um, and you know, what do you think the, the prospects are for Jordan speed to return to form before the open championship? Well,
1: this may be actually a very good spot in the schedule for him to give it a rest because if he's taking his designated event absentee uh week, or he has taken that rocket mortgage classic this week is kind of one of those breather weeks on the schedule anyway. So that's two weeks in a row. Next week is the John Deere Classic. And even though Spieth is a former champion at John Deere, you could see where he would be forgiven to take another week off and rest that wrist. And then do you want to play the Scottish Open? So in theory, and I'm not sure if this is what he's thinking, but in theory, he can give that wrist an entire month's rest, if he show if he chose to, to get ready for Royal Liverpool, and uh, maybe that's what he has to do for this stretch because right after uh, the Open Championship, uh, there's only two more events before the playoffs. You, there will be the 3M Open in Minneapolis, and then there will be the Wyndham Championship in, uh, Greensboro. And I'm guessing that Jordan might skip both of those too, if his wrist was really hurting. So, uh, it's a good chance for him to get ready for what's going to be a pretty compact stretch. Once we get into August.
0: Now we'll talk a little bit more about the, the stretch before the open, when we get into what's coming up this, this weekend, but first we've got to talk about the major that we had this past weekend, Ronnie Yen wins the women's PGA championship. Again, we talked about all of the names that were going to be in this event. It's one of the biggest fields that we've seen this year on the LPGA in terms of those top players. Uh, Ronnie Yin, not unknown. It's her her second PGA Tour win, but um, you know, just given... What was ahead of her coming in the the players, the names that she had to knock off, uh, having to outlast Yukasaso, who is you know definitely a, a more a known major quantity, champion. a major champion. Yeah. Um, on this on this event, you know, what it, what did it take for her to come out on top of the podium?
1: I think it was just kind of enjoying flying under that radar, even though she was at or tied for the lead from round two on. I believe it was. Uh, and again, you might have to forgive me for some of this because I was monitoring from (laughs) overseas, but uh, there was always the focus on what what is Rose Zhang doing? What is Nellie Corda doing? Uh, There were enough uh, big big event players, Brooke Henderson was the first round leader, that she was kind of able to just fly under the radar and play her own game, and she really didn't bubble up to the top until maybe midway through the final round and all of a sudden we're looking at that leaderboard and even though Rose is now making a charge on Sunday, maybe she, maybe Ronnie Yin is actually going to win this tournament. And again, it's not that she doesn't have the capability or didn't have the capability because she had won the DO implant LA open this spring, but she's definitely been an under the radar player. It's only her second year on the LPGA tour and uh, she's really started to come into her own.
0: Well, she's going to make a trip now that a lot of folks in the villages have made coming down from New Jersey to Florida because her (laughs) home is in Orlando now. But that's a little bit of a a funny situation, too. It
1: is. Um, There there are not that many Chinese players on the LPGA Tour, uh, even though we should probably drop in here that uh, Ronnie Yin is the second Chinese major winner uh, of a women's major um, because Shan Shan Feng, who also, by the way, lived in Orlando, uh, won the very same event. Event in 2012, but uh when she decided to come to the LPGA tour, you're looking for where can I make a base, uh, have a place to come back to during the weeks off. And uh one of her fellow Chinese professionals, uh Shi Yu Lin, um actually has two homes here. Uh I forget where the first one is, but her second home is Orlando. So Yin got in touch with Lynn. I think they knew each other already and, and uh, arranged a deal to rent the place in Orlando. And so it's been a pretty good deal. In fact, uh, there was some question after I think it was the first round, Brooke Henderson led, but then the next two names on the board were yin and lin and all of a sudden now you've got this landlord tenant relationship <laughs> out on the golf course and who was going to who was going to win and uh, i think lin still finished top 10 so it was a very good performance uh by the chinese uh, contingent there but uh after all was said and done on sunday somebody asked Yu lin well now what about having her in your second home and she's actually said, well, I thought after LA, I might have to raise a rent. Now, I definitely think I need to be raising her rent. And somebody relayed that to Ronnie Yin, who said that actually now I'm thinking about buying
0: that house. <laughs> a great exchange. Really funny. Again, the dynamic between the two of them being on the course, um, you know, towards the top of the leaderboard. Funny. And the, that they had that kind of humor at the end was also super enjoyable. Uh, Rose Zhang, also worth mentioning, um, her second LPGA event, her first major, and she's top 10 as well. She finishes eighth in this one. And I, again, she's just living up to all of the hype coming out of Stanford and maybe even exceeding it from there.
1: Yeah. I mean, we obviously have expected a lot from Rose coming out as a professional, but to do something that hadn't been done in seven decades in her first event. And she made a charge on Sunday. She made a, a long uh, Eagle on 18 that kind of, if things went South for Yin. Uh, might have put her in the mix for a playoff or something like that. She finished three shots back. Uh, so first and eighth in her first two LPGA starts. And um, now we, we go back to California. The LPGA is off this week, but it's the U.S. Women's Open next week at Pebble Beach I think the Stanford golf team has played a few times at Pebble Beach. I don't think you can count Rose out for this next one either.
0: Yeah, that's definitely an interesting one. Yeah, so let's get into what's coming up next week. Like you said, the LPGA is going to be awful. we've got a lot going on. We've got another major this week, the U.S. Senior Open. Padraig Harrington is the defending champion there. He's at a lot of tournaments right now <laughs> on the senior tour. But, uh, you know, what's the field look like, and uh, how are we how are we expecting this one to shape up? Obviously, Steve Stricker being in the field, you got to consider him amongst the favorites.
1: Well, I think that's... That, all the eyes are going to be on Steve Stricker because we've already had two senior majors this year. Steve Stricker won the region's tradition and then won the senior PGA championship. Uh, I think there's only been one other case where somebody has won the first three senior majors of the year. And it was a that's a research thing that I just didn't have time to do. But this is kind of the year that Steve Stricker is having. And then on top of that, where is this U.S. Senior Open? It's at Century World in Wisconsin, right in front of his hometown yep. fans. So I, I think all eyes are on Steve Stricker this week. Uh, he, he has a chance to do something that 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 uh, has been done, like I say, I think just once before. Uh, Stricker already has won three of the past seven majors, uh, and and is really. I think he will take a run at Bernard Langer, maybe not for that overall win record, but for major wins, uh, major senior wins. Uh, I think that we're starting to see that because Steve Stricker still got a lot of good golf mm-hmm. left in him. So, Stricker gets all the attention. Uh, Harrington, as you say, has been at or near the top of the leaderboard the whole time. And really, if it wasn't for Stricker, I think Harrington has probably been the best golfer on the Champions Tour this year. So, uh, it's it's a really good field. One interesting statistical note for that is that each of the last three U.S. Senior Open winners were doing it in their debut, having shortly turned, having turned fifty shortly before that. Uh, Not only was it Harrington last year; he was preceded by Jim Furyk and Stricker before that. So if you're go with that pattern. You're looking for some sort of debutante. Probably the best name in the 53 debutantes in this field is Justin Leonard, who has been just a couple of months out on the Champions Tour as well. So uh, should be an interesting... Uh, uh, watch and, and probably the best watch of the week.
0: Yeah. Well, if Stricker can pick up his second senior open trophy and goes three for three here to start, we might have to start talking about a Stricker slam, mm-hmm. uh, get him some kind of, uh, you know, just shorthand for, for that sort of accomplishment. <laughs> yeah. uh, we also have a live returning this week. They're going to be in Spain at Valderrama. First time that we've uh, seen the live tour back on. Uh, in, a, in a little bit, actually, is this the first event that they've had since the pseudo merger news? I,
1: I think it, it is. Yeah. Um and uh, that I mean that was just the way the schedule was drawn up with the PGA Championship and and the U.S. Open relatively close together. Um, plus. US Open qualifying that every LIV player had to go through if they wanted to even get into that major. So they had a month off. They're going to go back to back this week and next, Spain this week, and then they're going to go to London, makes sense, uh, for an event at Centurion, which is where the very first LIV event was held last year. Um, and then uh, it's the second, start of the second half of the season. Taylor Gooch is still uh, atop that points list. Uh, Brandon Grace and Brooks Kepka and Cameron Smith are very tightly bunched in two, three, and four. But Gooch with his wins in Australia and Singapore out on top of that. And then um, for the PGA Tours, we kind of touched on, it's the Rocket Mortgage Classic breather week that I'm calling it for uh, that tour. Uh, Four of the top 20 in the world rankings are entered. Although one of them well, actually those all four are household names, but I'm thinking of Tony Finau, who is the defending champion there. um, And, When we talk about long hitters and shorter courses, Detroit's not that long either. It's another city landlocked course. Uh, But Tony Finau looking for perhaps a third win this season after winning in Houston and Mexico back in the fall. And uh, you also have Max Homa and Justin Thomas and Colin Morikawa. And uh, Detroit Golf Club will have fewer trees than they did at the beginning of the week. After a big storm knocked down a bunch of them yesterday, they're in cleanup mode as we record here on Tuesday. Everything's still a go for that, but uh, I saw some photos of chainsaws and uh, and firewood, essentially, out yeah. there. <laughs> uh,
0: think about how funny it would be a year ago going into the Rocket Mortgage Classic, hearing yourself say Tony Finau looking for his third win of the season given where his career was at that point. And then he rattles off the back-to-back wins last season in in these two upcoming events, and then two wins already this season. I mean, really, uh, what a year for Tony – like a calendar year for Tony Finau, um, just given where we were with him a year ago.
1: Four wins in the last nine months, and he seems to win in bunches. He went back-to-back. that's the way it was on the schedule last year, back-to-back 3M and Rocket Mortgage. And then if I'm not mistaken, even if it wasn't back-to-back events, I think it was back-to-back starts for Tony in Houston and in Mexico. So uh, he's not, again, he doesn't play really poorly. Uh, for any no, long stretch ever. of time, yeah. it seems. But it's a question, can he win? Well, he's proven he can win. This is actually the first time, I think, uh, that he will defend a title because his very first career title was at the old FedEx St. Jude Classic, which disappeared, became a playoff event, or World Golf Championships event, or see how now I'm, I'm even confused. He won it as a World <laughs> Golf Championships <laughs> event. Yes. Those went away. It's now a playoff event. Right. So. Uh, this is a little uncharted territory for him, I guess, is what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, but excited to see him back out there. Oh, I was talking to you before we started recording. I was a little bit surprised to see Max Homa, Justin Thomas, and Colin Morikawa in this field just because those guys have struggled recently. They're not playing up to their own standard. Max missing the cut at LACC was uh, you know, both disappointing and pretty surprising. Justin Thomas has not played at nearly the level we saw from him last year. Colin Murakawa seems like he's still working through a lot of stuff. And, um, you know, that we saw a lot of that from him last year. And this year, it seems like we've seen flashes, but he's still not getting back to that everyday contention that we sort of expected from him when he was winning those majors early. Um, But, you know, we were talking in, you know, we're now in preparation for the Open Championship. We're in that month stretch where these guys are thinking about getting into it. So, what do you think the philosophy is for these guys in the top twenty? Obviously, Tony now is defending, but for those three guys specifically, who you would think would be taking time as they're working on their game, all of these guys are making adjustments to what they're doing right now. They've talked about it. Except, I don't, I don't think I've heard anything about that from Max, but Colin and Justin have both talked about making adjustments to swings and stuff like that. Uh, Why do you think that they're choosing to play this week and not take this one off and uh, maybe take off until the Scottish open right before the open championship? Well,
1: I think that they want to test what they've been doing, continue to test what they've been doing on the golf course uh, before heading across the pond. I'm sure all three of them are entered in the Scottish open. So it makes sense that if you're going to play two out of the three, Uh, And especially if you maybe want to go to Scotland a little early, you will skip the John Deere Classic next week. So test it a little this week, fine tune during the week off, get to Scotland, get acclimated and and get ready for that final push. I'll also throw something else out there. Uh, We're in this stretch run for the season. Um, There are only six events left to the FedEx Cup playoffs. Not that any of those three guys necessarily are in danger of of missing the playoffs, but they may want to put themselves in better position in case they have a bad first playoff event at Memphis at the FedEx St. Jude. Uh, There's also the consideration that it is a Ryder Cup year and Ryder Cup points are definitely at stake. And I'm not sure about Homa, but I know that Thomas and Morakawa are not in the top six automatic qualifiers. They're in the top 12. So if Zach Johnson was to just go down the points list and fill his wildcard selections with 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, those two guys would be good. But they are not guaranteed anything. So even if they don't necessarily win, you know, a good top 10 finish will get them jumped up a little closer, maybe even into that top six so that they don't have to worry about Zach Johnson having to make a pick.
0: Yeah. I was just looking at the, the Ryder cup considerations the other day, and that's something next week when it's uh, we're not quite as, as packed on golf. We should actually take a look at some of those standings and the the guys who are outside that cut. Now, now is a really interesting time to be thinking about that. Keegan so,
1: Bradley, by the way, with his I win, say, moved
0: up to seven. He's up just Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, actually next week I'm going to put that on, make a note of that, and we might might dive into that as well. So that's it for golf, though, for this week. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking about the Villages SC and, again, a topsy-turvy week and coming to the end of that hyper Uh, accelerated stretch of their season right after this from high school heroes to softball to the latest on the villages fairways the daily sun brings you the best in local sports stay informed with
1: the nation's fastest growing newspaper in the nation's fastest growing community subscribe to the villages daily sun by calling 352-753-1119 Soccer, the topic for the final segment of uh, this week's Daily Sun Sports Podcast. Jeff Shane, back with you, along with Drew Shaltrey. And it was perhaps the best of times and the worst of times, or at least <laughs> the worst of 10 minutes for TVSC, the Villages Soccer Club, in kind of a wild, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Manic depressive, or maybe depressive manic week for, for the club. Suffering... Even though the score wouldn't indicate it and and the eyeball test wouldn't necessarily indicate it, but for the way it happened, the worst loss in Buffalo history, but then following it up with a really good bounce back win over Brevard FC... But I guess we'll we'll take the bad news first. Uh, a 2-1 stoppage time loss to Florida Elite where everything went well until about the 80th or 81st minute.
0: Yeah, it, it's really funny. You mentioned kind of the up and down of last week. Those two matches were probably... 170 of the best minutes that the Buffalo have played all season, <laughs> the first 80 of the Florida Elite game and then the 90 of the Brevard match. Um, you know, again, just, just take out that final 10 minutes of the Florida Elite game. And, uh, you know, even though this, I think this is going to be overall positive, this discussion about the Buffalo, given where they are now uh, after Saturday's match, um, that 10 minutes was devastating for them at the time. So um, just to to summarize for folks who haven't read about it or weren't at the match, uh, they the Buffalo scored in the 11th minute easily could have had four goals in that first half of that match. The Florida league goalkeeper absolutely stood on his head to make some incredible saves. Fred Ferreira could have had one. Oscar Rosano could have had one. There were, there were some really quality shots that uh, turned into saves in that one Uh, and that they could have put that game away early had he not been uh, playing some of the best keeper I've seen all year. Uh, Stopped a point blank header from Nick Vitter at one point. I mean, it was uh, just some of, again, some of the best goalkeeping that I've seen some of the best goalkeeping that the Buffalo have faced this season from Jacob Randolph. Uh, But, you know, they get all the way into the 81st minute carrying that lead. And then, uh, you know, just one quick surge from Florida Elite. It started with a throw-in, just a ball, you know, that was knocked out of bounds to to stop in advance. And four guys from Florida Elite really just kind of push up the field, quick throw-in, fast sequence, and all of a sudden they're scoring. It's really the one lapse that the Buffalo had all game, and it leads to an equalizer. And so you're like, okay, well, that's that's not great if you're a Buffalo fan watching that, but, hey, you know, it, it, it is what it is. It's a good team. It's going to be a draw. It's disappointing just like the last time they played that team at home, but uh, you know it's, it's not the worst possible result. Well, then you know Florida elite player gets a second yellow red card like immediately after the goal and you're thinking, okay, there's 10 minutes for them now. And if you include you know the estimated stoppage time 10 minutes with a man advantage for them to try to push something, they've got a chance here to salvage the three points. Well, Henrique Luro gets a second yellow card. So he's now out, and it's even. Get into stoppage time. Neither team's really had much in the way of quality opportunities. Uh, Florida Elite sends a long ball. It's a one-on-one situation with the goalies still behind the play in the box, and Leonardo Andrade comes charging in as a second defender and clears out the striker for Florida Elite. He gets a yellow card inside the box, his second yellow. It's a red. He's off. And Florida Elite gets a penalty kick, and they end up winning that in stoppage time 2-1 off the PK. So uh, just a really, really tragic way to lose a game, especially one that the Buffalo really controlled. It was similar to how we've seen them play against Tampa Bay. Not quite as lopsided as what they did to Brevard in both of those games, but, I mean, they had a huge edge in possession, had an edge in shots, an edge in corners. I mean, they really... Again, for the entire first 80 minutes, we're by far the better side. And it again, watching the film back, Anderson DeSilvi told me today he's like, I cannot believe <laughs> that we weren't up by multiple goals when when it got to the point where they scored their first one, just because of how well they played. And again, huge credit to Jacob Randolph for keeping that game within reach for his team. It really allowed them the opportunity to uh, to make that incredible comeback. So. Um, absolutely a, a devastating loss for the Villages SC, but I do think they found a way to kind of climb out of that point. Lucas Mauro was talking to me after the game and he's like, you know, we have to manage this with positivity. And in the moment I'm thinking, okay, that's just something that you have to say, you know, (laughs) like you're, you're trying to find silver linings and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how you find a positive moment coming out of a match like that. The mood of the players coming off the field was brutal. Um, you know coach de Silva wasn't um I wouldn't say he was pessimistic necessarily he's a pretty positive guy but it's about as down as I've seen him I've it seen him after guts out yeah there, I've right? seen him after playoff losses where he was more upbeat uh than than what he was Wednesday night so I mean it felt it felt pretty bad. I'm not gonna say that it felt like the season was over or anything like that but it was like this is a big hole you know mentally for them to climb out of now but uh what they were able to do to turn around within three days and, and get out of that hole, I thought was really impressive.
1: Well, and that leads to maybe my question is, even though it didn't sound exactly anything more than maybe a canned quote at the time, but to get out of it with positivity, and you said it at the very top of the segment, it was the, a very good 80 minutes. So there was a chance to draw from positivity Maybe you just flush the last 10 minutes off of that film, but you can go back and say, we did this right and did this right and did this right, and it it starts to take the, a little bit of the sting out to where you now you're ready to work and get it back.
0: Yeah, and I think definitely from a coaching perspective, that's a pretty easy way to manage it. And again, in the moment, it had to feel terrible. But they didn't lose that match because they were worse than Florida League. Like, they're not walking out of there thinking, oh, my God, we're never going to beat that team. Right. So I guess that's the positive. It sucks to lose like that in the moment, but coming out of that, all you have to think is if we play that match again, we're winning it. You know, Uh, like if they play that match the exact same way, uh, you know, if they have the same opportunities, that kind of thing, there's almost no chance that they're not winning a game with the edge they had in possession, the shots, the quality of shots, um, that kind of thing. So, I, I mean, that's that's kind of where they just had to get to. I talked to Oscar Rosano after Saturday's match. He's like, you know, we had a team meeting. We talked about how we haven't lost anything. That's the other thing is they were still alive in the division. It was only their first loss. It just kind of leveled things with them and Nona and Florida Elite at the time. It's not like it put them out of reach to where they have to rely on somebody else to get them into the playoffs you know they still all believed that they were good enough to win this division and you know potentially advance through the conference playoffs and stuff like that so it was just in the moment a really hard one to overcome and I think it's really admirable that they didn't let it keep them low and and I was out at practice today the mood is way up obviously a big win on Saturday which we can talk about in a minute helped get them there but I, I think that that's uh, that shows a lot of maturity. Shows a lot of experience on this team that they were able to kind of shake that off and come back with a strong result so quickly after.
1: And and not only did they come back with a strong result, but you've been watching this team maybe since the beginning. This was a route over Brevard FC of in in every in every way, and doing it with some guys that had not seen the pitch before because we had two red card suspensions that needed to be served on the back line. We also had an injury that had to be overcome. So a little bit of a piecemeal to put the roster or the lineup together, including bringing an assistant coach out of (laughs) retirement for a game, but they managed to do it and do it with flair.
0: Yeah. I joked, uh, that you know, coaches in football, basketball, soccer, every sport, they'll, they'll always talk about wanting to have your leader be like a coach on the field. Well, Anderson De Silva literally had that <laughs> <laughs> on Saturday. They, they dragged L- Yago Lopez out of retirement. He joked with me that his uh, training had consisted of eating McDonald's and working on becoming a coach. Like that's all he's done since <laughs> January. It's the last time he played in an organized match. He played in the friendly against the, the St. Louis City developmental team when they were down here okay. uh, with the first team for some, uh, some winter training stuff. so he gets pressed into action he was actually training with the team again today uh he said that you know whether or not he plays is entirely up to anderson de silva though he told me saturday that he hopes it's the last time (laughs) that he has to play he is still kind of trying to maintain his retirement uh he he wants to focus on the coaching but he's also going to do whatever the club needs uh the good news is that henrique luro and leonardo andrade should be back uh, for the next game uh, following they, they served the one game suspension on Saturday so that shouldn't be uh, an issue going forward for them but yeah it put them in a really tough spot losing both of those guys uh, Nick Witter goes out with the ankle injury he's still dealing with that uh, he's hopeful that he'll be back for playoffs obviously he's been a, a really big piece for them for uh, this year and last year so again really hope that that's a guy that can get back onto the pitch for the Buffalo but I thought it was interesting Saturday that Anderson De Silva kind of leaned into the the fact that he wasn't going to have all of his guys not only did those three guys not start but he put two more regular starters on the bench lucas mauro and nick butler he decided to to go with sub uh, replacements for them as well and actually only brought a 17-man roster to the game didn't even <laughs> bring all of the uh, possible substitutions never subbed mauro in by the way he, he didn't end up playing a minute decided to give him rest for the whole time because he you know, didn't need him. It was pretty much a route uh, early on. Yes. (laughs) So uh, I thought that that was interesting, but I also think it's interesting that they, put that team on the field and then dominated Brevard even more so than they did in the first meeting with that team where they beat them three nil and you know really control possession and pace and everything else like that so uh, seeing the team again the bounce back uh, you know being able to see market improvement from just a couple of weeks ago getting to see the depth of the team there were a lot a lot of positives to take out of Saturday um, which is you know it's not that you wouldn't have expected them to win, just looking at again the the previous match and the standings and everything like that but uh the the rebound I thought was really really impressive
1: was that an angry team playing on Saturday just and I mean it in a sense that they're mad at themselves and they need to get it out of their system by going back to doing something that they could hold their head high about.
0: I think there was definitely a a sense of like needing to restore some pride. I did ask yeah. guys about that after the game, and, and Anderson De Silva's think put it best. He's like, we didn't just need it. We needed a good win, and this was a good win. It wasn't just we beat this team that we were supposed to be. It's like we played to our maximum ability – and we got to see all of these guys do it. And so, um, you know, guys who didn't play in that Florida elite game or didn't play major minutes in that Florida elite game played with a lot of energy. They played like they had suffered that loss personally. So guys like, uh, Joao Santos and Austin Lukasik, who, uh, I don't believe Santos had actually been on the pitch before, uh, but started that match. And then lucasic has been a sub all year. Um, those guys came in and played with incredible energy, played great, uh, played great on the back line for the villages SC in that one. And so, Um, I think that there is a lot of, you know, unity. And I think that they did take that loss very personally, even the guys who weren't on the pitch for that match, for the entirety of that match, or for the end of that match, they really uh, knew that they needed something big on Saturday. And they came with, I kind of joked with uh, Pedro Santos and Lucas Mauro. Uh, they were sort of commiserating on the pitch after the Florida elite game. I was like, Hey, just take it out on Brevard. Right. (laughs) And they were like, Yeah, that's what we're going to have to do. And to to an extent, they kind of did. So, um, yeah, I don't know that they would have had a similar level result if it had been Nona in the next match. Obviously, that would have been Mm -hmm. tough with the suspensions and the injuries and everything like that. But I think that whatever team came into the building on Saturday was going to get maximum effort from the Buffalo.
1: One of the players who had not seen a lot of minutes, uh, but – is starting to to kind of get some of the trust of Anderson Da Silva is Aidan Kashmarsky, a teenager, rising senior at Bellevue.
0: Yeah, this was actually a really cool moment. He's an academy player. Uh, Like you said, he's a rising senior, so he's teammates with guys like Joel Hernandez and Michael Florian and Jason Globig, who we've talked about that play at VHS and are also part of the Buffalo's USL Academy program. He's been on the roster uh, for all of this season, made the 18-man roster roster, prior to Saturday's game. But at halftime, Anderson De Silva says, okay, I'm going to go ahead and sub him in, move Joao Santos, you know, more experienced, more veteran player to the outside wingback spot and slot Aiden in at center back. And he played great. Uh, He he, he played 45 minutes plus, uh, well, it was basically no second half stoppage, but played 45 minutes of really high level soccer, um, did a good job recovering in a couple of defensive spots, almost scored a goal. uh, If it hadn't been for probably the best, Uh, save of the day from the Brevard keeper. He would have had a goal, a USL2 goal to his name. So, um, you know, that would have been a great moment, but still really cool to see him on the pitch. Uh, I just actually wrote about it today. If you want to pick up a copy of tomorrow's paper, kind of um, him serving as a little bit of an inspiration to guys like Jason Globig and Michael Florian who are training with the first team right now and are trying to, Make it onto that team, make an 18-man roster this summer. Those guys will be on the Villages High School team next year, play with him on the academy team. So, uh, Anderson De Silva is, you know, really proud of the fact that he's played his way into that spot. Uh, it's kind of exemplifying that path to pro model that the USL Two wants to be, and you know, the Villages SC has taken that, you know, even beyond. You know, just being a spot for players to come in and go on. They're taking players that are local that they've had since they were you know, some as young as 8, 9, 10, uh, developed them up through their high school years and gotten them to this point where now Aiden's going to go into his senior year, hopefully going to get some options uh, as far as college soccer programs to play for, and um, it, again, maybe see more time with the USL2 program this summer. So it's really cool to see the club developing those local players, finding the talent and and curating it to get to this point.
1: Not only Aiden, uh, who almost got a goal, but we got the first goals of the season for a couple of guys that kind of needed their first goals of the season.
0: Yeah, Fred Ferreira. Uh, (laughs) I don't think there was anyone who needed to see a goal go in more than Fred Ferreira. That guy has had so many good shots rejected, not just shots, good shots rejected. And what's funny is uh, I think he would absolutely trade the goal that he scored for the one that he missed, he was about eight inches away from making a bicycle kick. (laughs) That would have been, I think, the first goal of the game. I think it was before uh, Rosano's first goal, but, um, that would have been (laughs) quite the moment. But when he went in like the, the, the field went nuts. I mean, Oscar Rosano literally ran over and picked him up around the middle (laughs) and started carrying around the pitch. I mean, everybody wanted a goal for him because he's had so many chances and it's not that he's missing with them. It's not that he's not making the most of them. He's been rejected over and over. Uh, I'm trying to remember there was, um, Last year, Tete Vacas had, mm-hmm. uh, had a similar situation where he was playing really well, had a lot of chances, and just kept running into brick wall goalkeepers. And Fred Ferreira, I feel like, was getting the same sort of treatment this year where he was getting opportunities, he was getting shots, he was creating opportunities and not get not getting the reward on the finishing end of those. And so seeing a goal go in for him, and it came off of a great setup. I believe actually Rosano had the assist on that one. Um, it was, was really good. It had, I know it was cathartic for him to to finally get <laughs> one, but that was probably the the most exciting one, uh, just from a, um, you know, season long narrative standpoint. Rosano had two for his first multi-goal game for the villages. He's the, the leading scorer for the Buffalo so far this season. That was great. Uh Mateus Ferreira scored another, he had the goal against Florida elite on the really good set piece on Wednesday, but, um, This one was just a really strong, just a hard stop he had a defender chasing him and he hard stops and the guy goes tumbling right past him. <laughs> and the the way the bench jumped, that was like when you see like NBA, like basketball yeah, and right? the bench goes nuts, <laughs> it was like that. And then he scores. And it, so obviously pandemonium with the celebration, but so there were a couple really good ones uh, in addition to it just being a blowout, some really quality goals and some really fun ones as well.
1: So let's take a look at the standings um, right now. It is still Florida elite at the top of the table, with 18 points, although that is a byproduct of a front-loaded schedule. So Elite in first place, Nona FC, two points behind in second. The Villages, another two points behind in third, but maybe a little bit of a... uh, uh, a a mirage of sorts in the picture.
0: Yeah, Florida Elite's been out front pretty much all season. Like you said, front-loaded schedule. They've played 10 matches already and only gotten 18 points out of it. It's not bad, but it's not great. It's not the sort of mark that you think is going to keep a team above Nona and the Villages. So, um, you know, they've only got two matches left, one of those being this Wednesday against the Villages. If the Villages wins that one, they're only a point back of Florida Elite with three extra matches to play right. over them. So that's a pretty good spot to be. And you have to imagine they're going to get a couple more points out of the two matches with Swan City. Obviously, that Nona game will be huge. And then finishing against the Tampa Bay team that, for all intents and purposes, is out of it. Um, so it, that's... You know, I I joked a little bit that it's kind of like Arsenal this year in the Premier League where, you know, they come out really hot. But then you're looking down the stretch. It's like, okay, well, Man City's got two extra games to play and the deficit is only this. And they still have to play each other. It's very similar to that situation. So the Village is going to go to Florida Elite Wednesday night. Uh, with a chance to make up three of those points, obviously they're hell-bent on winning that match. Yes. They're treating it like a final, but it's also very personal because of this past Wednesday night. So they would love nothing more than to hand them uh, a fat L on Wednesday. Uh, and then that sets up a what could effectively be a division championship right. against Nona um, on July 8th. So like you said, the Village is two points back of them. If they win that one... Um, and these two teams are even in games played right now. So if they win that one, that puts them one point ahead of them, uh, assuming, you know, they each win their next game and then it's just controlling your destiny from there. So uh, it's a really good spot for the villages to be in. Again, they're still in control of their destiny. They don't have a lot of leeway as far as, Uh, controlling their path to the division championship, but it is still very much in their own hands.
1: And one thing that has also happened uh, in recent days is a little tweak to the USL playoff structure. We had talked in previous podcasts about this was very cut and dry. You either win the division or you're out. Now we have one wild card spot to play with.
0: Yes. There's a shared wild card spot between the Southeast and the South Florida division. It doesn't quite level out what I talked about earlier in the season with the disparity in quality between the two divisions, because there is a world where two mediocre teams could just take up all the points in the South Florida division. And again, Florida Elite, Nona, and the Villages cannibalize each other, which is what we've seen so yes. far this season. Assuming the Villages gets these two wins, you know that's that's all three of them just kind of eating away at points from each other because Florida Elite and Nona each beat each other once. Uh, the villages in Florida elite drew the villages and Nona drew. Uh, so, you know, someone's going to get results out of these last two games um, between those three squads. So, I mean, there's a lot there that's, you know, those teams are sacrificing because of the quality of the division, you know, Tampa Bay has been a quality team for a while and they're sitting here with eight points um, just because the three at the top are, are so strong this right. year. So um, again, it doesn't quite level it out, but as things stand right now, the Villages SC, should they come up short in either this game against Florida Elite, which is probably the more important of the two, just with regards to making the playoffs, or that July 8th match against Nona, um, you know, there is still a pathway for them to make it into the Southern Conference playoffs. As of right now, all of the teams in the South Florida division, except for FC Miami City, have two losses. So... Uh, if you're just looking at total points to be the the decider for the better second place team, the Villages SC still on pace for that. They again just have to avoid those losses with Nona and Florida Elite. Have to get a win, preferably in both of those, to get the sure. the division title. But um, you know, still very much alive for a wild card spot if one of those goes awry.
1: So it's two games this week for the Buffalo, both on the road Wednesday night at Florida Elite. That's going to be at Mandarin High School. Uh, Slight chance, perhaps, that the venue will be changed, but uh, uh, the game is definitely on and and that's a little bit of a revenge game now for the Buffalo. Uh, That's Wednesday night and then on Saturday, also on the road, a little bit easier driving distance if you want to go out and watch, but that is at Swan City in Lakeland at Florida Southern College. And uh, this kind of Brings to an end this really compacted stretch of the Buffalo schedule.
0: Yeah, we talked uh, just a couple weeks ago about them setting off this stretch of seven matches in 22 days. These are the last two, you know, Wednesday, Saturday, and then they get that week off to prepare for that Nona match. So it sets up well for them. This is also the last of their road schedule. They're going into three straight home matches to end the season, which is a pretty good place to be. Again, assuming they can get the results against Florida Elite and uh, Nona, if everything else goes chalk, they're, you know, well, and they're well positioned to make that happen. um, You know, that, that's the, the path to the division title right there.
1: So a a big week, and then we will have a full week off for the 4th of July holiday before getting back into uh, the biggest match of, the schedule, if everything goes according to what we think, uh, at home against Nona on July 8th, but uh, coming down to the stretch run, and as usual, the Villages SC right in the middle of it, so we'll be interested to see what happens there. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Villages Daily Sun Sports Podcast. Drew, always good to sit across from you again. And uh, missed you a little bit last week while I was in Japan, but I knew what uh, we would have a plenty to catch up on as uh, we came back just in case uh, you had kind of read between the lines we will be off next week we'll, there will be no podcast with the 4th of July holiday so when we come back in 2 weeks we'll actually be recapping that uh, village's SC uh, Nona FC game but uh, I hope that uh, you have a good 4th of July weekend of course Do what you always do, I suppose, when it comes to listening, downloading, liking, recommending to your friends. We always like to see those numbers on the downloads that we get. And Drew, always uh, good to sit across from you. Uh, Thanks again to Chris Siegel and Nick Feely who allow us to get this done. And until next time, and that'll be after the Fourth of July holiday, enjoy your holiday, and we'll see you out on the playing field.